a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Now this sounds like a dream. You grew up on the streets of Milan, filled with the chatter of happy people and of course the smells of beautiful Italian food. A carefree childhood and untroubled teens and then becoming a celebrated opera singer and an actor and marrying and moving to Australia following a dream of becoming a food writer. For some people, they really do live a charm life. She's authored four cookbooks, is a regular contributor to Delicious, and has co-written and produced and starred in a number of food shows all about Italian food, of course. In this episode, Sylvia sings for us and talks about why the kitchen is where she's most at home. Do you know, I read your resume and I just was exhausted. <laughs> I was exhausted after reading that resume. I'm hyperactive. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. So opera singer, actor, um, author, TV producer, mm, yeah. mother. Yeah, yeah. That's what else do we add? What else do we add? That should be at the top of the list. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, but where, it, that's where I dropped the ball mostly. So. But I'm just like, where to start? And then I went, okay, it's a, it's a food podcast. Yes. You're a proud Milanese. Proud Milanese with some Abruzzese and, um, and Southern Italian blood as well because I was born and raised in Milan. So I grew up in that beautiful city. But my mum's family uh, migrated to Milan from Abruzzo when my mum was a teenager. And my nonno and my nonna only ever spoke in dialect. And well, they could speak Italian, obviously, but they didn't really choose to do that very much, which was very funny when they were arguing. <laughs> and every summer, the whole family would relocate to the village where my mum was born in. And, and this still happens in my family, by the way, every summer. There's a migration to this little village called Torricella. And, uh, and so that was, I think that was the, the main influence for me, even though um, my, my dad's family was very important and my paternal grandma was from Emilia Romagna, which is the culinary epicenter of Italy. And uh, to this day, there's like, no, no one can ever make tortellini or gnocchi the way she did, <laughs> or brasato, or like those really rich, amazing um, foods that make Italy so glorious, really. Um, but his, his, grandf- his, his father and his grandfather were from Naples and Sicily. So there's, there's a bit of a mixed, a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it comes out in arguments a lot, like the fasti Southern Italian. <laughs> I think that's just it- Italians in general, isn't it? They yeah. argue endlessly yeah. about food, would they argue, and politics. Politics and soccer. Soccer. Yeah. Coffee. And, oh, God, yeah. And we're feisty and so opinionated. It's like it's exhausting. You can never agree to disagree, basically, at an Italian dinner table. And sometimes, even if we're, it, we're not arguing, it sounds like we're arguing. It's just that we're so excitable. And I remember when I moved to sort of the English-speaking country, I realised that my intensity was come across as too intense. It's kind of like, edit a bit. <laughs> so when I go back... I, all my Italianness comes back with a You have to bring back the feistiness. Oh, wowzy. And yes. driving would be another thing too. Mm, You'd have yeah. to step on the gas. I'm a better driver here. Oh, are you? I'm better, <laughs> yeah, because I have to be. <laughs> you have to be a different driver. You've got to be on the accelerator and on the brake. Oh, yeah, and nimble. However, I've noticed that in Italy, I mean, look, the, the, the driving is, is, is hilarious at best. But if you have your indicators on, they let you in. We're in Sydney they would rather see you catch fire than let you ah, in. And here, so there's a and bit here of the differences come it's out. Like, yeah, come if somebody indicates, they go, not on my watch. No, You're yeah. not coming in here. Over my dead body. Yeah. So <laughs> but, it's like, okay. So growing up in Milan, mm. as a little, were you a naughty girl? Were you a good no, girl? No, I was a good girl, which is a. I'm stuck in my later years. Well, you regret that. You've got no terrible stories to tell. Of well, no, I do in my youth. adolescence because then when you grow up being a good girl and I was a good Catholic girl and, you know, wanting to just, I wanted to be so pious and, and saint-like and, and life is not like that. And then all of a sudden you become a teenager with all that happens within you. And you go wrong so quickly and so much. 
And and then, of course, I came out of that and I wanted to be a good girl again. And now that I'm older and wiser, I think, actually, it's not about being a good girl. It's about being a good person. And you can be naughty and still be a good person. You can mess up and still be a good person. Um, but this, you know, it's striving to be good and it's exhausting and it's just not realistic. <laughs> and and it's, okay, it's actually really okay to mess up it makes you more human and you can let go of a lot of stuff you don't have to be right all the time you don't have to be perfect or try to be perfect it's um it, it and it's not like i don't think it's an excuse to be lazy about doing things well but i think it's uh it's it helps not being completely blown away by levels of anxiety because that that level of perfection is unattainable and i think you know my a, bringing in you know being a, a, a catholic girl um had a lot to answer for because you know everything you do if you do it badly you oh, go you're to gonna hell. be punished <laughs> yeah there's so a lot I of fire to to there's but a lot now, of fire you know, it's like okay i'm going to hell anyway so i might as well have fun <laughs> well that's where everybody is I'm just <laughs> yeah. like there's only a few people in heaven yeah um so describe growing up as because i read somewhere that your your grandmothers maybe as plural were both very influential in you they were growing up and your your mum and dad so Take us back to the good Catholic girl. Can you describe <laughs> um, what that looked like in Milan? Well, you uh, know, here in Australia, and hold that, that, that was the question, but here in Australia we always look at Italy and we romanticise it yeah, and it's all these very special things. So can you paint that picture? Well, look, I can because um, it is very easy to do that if you, you know, if I, if I think back. In fact, my mum sent me this picture of, um, of my dad holding me as a probably two or three-year-old in Milan, and we were sitting in my paternal grandmother's living room. My dad looks incredibly dashing, super handsome, and I, you know, I look like a disheveled toddler. But it, I remember that. I don't remember that photo being taken, obviously, but I remember the feeling of Sunday afternoons at my nonna's um, and just these lunches that she'd make for us. She was the quintessential um, home cook from Emilia-Romagna. So everything was enormous in portion, in richness. She loved butter. She really did love butter. And um, she, would, like she would add girl. it to tomato sugo. She, like, she was so, everything was so excessive. And, and that's the memory I have of um, these big tables with my dad, my mom, my uncle, my nonna, and my other two siblings, and these huge bowls of either gnocchi or agnolotti, tortelloni, and then the arrosto, the brasato to follow. Of course, kids, you know, we'd just have some gnocchi and then we'd be off playing, but the grown-ups would just be tucking in. And then my memory is both my dad and my uncle Gianni sitting on armchairs, just stroking the growing bellies proudly. And me having sleeps on either belly. It was just so comforting. In fact, I'll show you. I know, I mean, this is just Dave's for just you to see. But gone, if you see this photo, um, you'll, um, <laughs> you'll understand what, I, what I'm recalling. It's um, I'll tell you, what, your dad does look very dashing. So He's got dashing. lots of slick black hair and a beard and he looks well fed. <laughs> Doesn't I'll he? say that. And you're, you're obviously looking at something. You're very relaxed. I think I'm looking at him quite adoringly. Yeah. That's when your dad was perfect. He still is. You know? He still has the, he looks exactly the same, but the, it's just, just white. But oh, he's still got his hair. Oh, Lucky a full man. Head of hair. Oh, I'm talking to a man in his 50s losing <laughs> his hair. It's a disaster. So, yeah, so, that, so so that was Sunday a... at my paternal nonna. And then when we, because we'd alternate, one weekend it was my paternal nonna, and the other weekend was my nonno and my nonna from Abruzzo. Completely different environment, chaotic. Those two would fight like cat and dog and just adore each other. And that was the nonna that used to make the big polenta on a board with like this avalanche of sausage stew tumbling on top and everybody would dig in with forks, no plates, just the board and beautiful. So transitioning into teenage years, what did you want to be? What did you dream of being? I always wanted to perform since that photo you saw. Um, and, uh, and so I think mum and dad were very wise to, uh, channel all that sort of energy that I had into, um, acting school very early on. And, uh, and I did that and I, I, I got my acting diploma and then I decided 
I want to sing, but I don't just want to sing. I want to sing opera because why should you just sing, you know, pop music when you can sing opera? But I had no musical training. I didn't play an instrument. I didn't know how to read or write music. And this was like, I think I was probably 20 or 21, which is quite late to be learning a foreign language, which is what music is. But, you know, I was driven. Someone along the line at drama school said, oh, your voice, you know, could you could sing opera. And I'm like, bam, that's what I'll do. Never been to one before. It's like, oh, no, no. It's... Just had, is that yeah. symptomatic of who you are? I think I'm very, I'm very, it. I guess I'm very dramatic. So it really suited me. And I have to say that it was, not only was a beautiful thing to learn to do because, um, you know, it's, a, it's playing an instrument and, and, and I had to learn to read and write music and all those things, which is a skill that I'm, I still love so much. But what it taught me, which high school didn't because I was a bit of a naughty teenager, was discipline. Because I couldn't get away with just having, you know, naturally like a, a nice sounding voice. You trained like an athlete and you, I, used to, I used to smoke, so I had to quit straight away. Um, and uh, I just had to really, I, I, I was a bit naughty as a teenager, as they say, but then in my early 20s, I was like living this sort of nun life where I was just devoted to honing this craft and then getting into doing it professionally. And I, I just wanted to, I think I want, also wanted to prove everyone that I could do it because it was so out there and... Not, I mean, because everybody said, okay, well, so you want to be an actress. Well, maybe you should also have like another skill, something else, just to back you up. I know, I'll be an opera singer. So, so nothing seemingly practical from no, everybody's perspective. No, but. exactly. But it kind of worked out and it worked out uh, together because um, then I started doing a lot of uh, professional work as a musical theatre performer, which sort of combined the two skills together and... And, um, and, and that was predominantly what I was, what I, what I was doing. And, um, and then I randomly auditioned for this thing that I didn't know what it was until I got the role and I realized it was a $250 million Hollywood movie with Hugh Jackman and Richard Roxburgh, um, David Wenham and a bunch of other, um, Hollywood actors. And, um, and so that, that sort of, um, you know, changed things a lot for me and uh and of course I met um I met Richard whom then I married and I'm still married to and uh, and you know it also brought me to Australia because Richard is Australian for those of you who may not know so you've, uh, you've sped up your career really fast I have sorry. I'll tell you what <laughs> so the movie was Van Helsing, Van Helsing yeah which, which is a, a blockbuster, blockbuster. Movie. what part did you play in that I was Dracula's so how did you First get, bride. if you're going to skip ahead, really, we're going to have to go back, you okay. realise that, but if you're going to skip ahead, what part did you audition for? I, I auditioned for that part. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And got it straight away, it was easy, it was a breeze? It was, or? it was so easy, which made me feel like, oh, surely this is not a big project, because how can this happen like this? I did, uh, uh, they called me in for a screen test in Rome. At the time, I think I was, I, I was living in Rome, so that was, yeah, I just went in, and then a few weeks later... Uh, the casting director said, um, they're going to fly you to London to meet the director. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really fancy. And Monica Bellucci was in the waiting room waiting to audition as well. And I thought, oopsie, this is serious. And, um, and she was super nice, by the way. And, um, and then I met the director. And, um, and then it, it, like a week later, I was in LA doing uh, body casts because, you know, I had to wear prosthetic makeup to turn into an evil um, vampire bat creature. Um, <laughs> there I was thinking, ooh, I'm casting a Hollywood, I'm going to look so glamorous. Mm, no. Um, but it was fun. <laughs> Had you already uh, reached a certain level of fame in Italy before you got that part? No, no, no. I was mainly doing stage and music theatre. and um, But within circles? Of yeah, yeah, look, yeah. Musical so, theatre? Yeah, yeah, or? within that circle. Yeah, we didn't. Everybody was like astonished that this had happened and um, so was I. Like, I don't so it's know. a sliding doors moment yeah, really, I isn't it? I don't know how it happened, but yes. But aren't they the best? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was. Was uh, it one of those cases that you nearly didn't go to it? Or you, or no, it a... no, no, I, I, um, <clears throat> I, I did, but I, I, because I just, luckily I didn't know how big the project was and so I didn't go with any particular expectation that, oh, this could be life-changing or something. It was really when they put me on a flight to LA and the flight was in first class and I thought, 
holy, you know, because <laughs> I remember um, I gave the booking number to my mom because she's a travel agent and I said, can you just select me a nice seat? Because I thought I was flying economy. And she said, do you know you're not flying economy, there right? And I'm seats. like, oh, is it like business? And she said, no, you're flying first. And I'm mm. like, oh gosh. I, just, I spent the flight pushing buttons and beds that were going, you know, fully flat. And there were all these movie stars that Don Johnson was sitting next to me on oh, one Don flight. Johnson, and then Miami Vice. Yeah, I know. I know. My <laughs> sister used to have a huge crush on him. He was very handsome. <laughs> and I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> so crazy. You know, the first time I flew business class, I remember they put the meal in front of me and I ate everything on it because I thought that was a bit light on, you know, because there was a little... I didn't know at the time, but it was a little entree. Yeah, yeah, I a little ate, salad. Yeah, and, and I ate the chocolates and everything. <laughs> and I just thought, geez, I think I was going to America or something. And I, I don't know how I got the upgrade, but I ate everything. And then the the main course, the flight right. attendant came up and said, "Wow, you must have been hungry. What would you like for your main course?" I was so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I just so go, funny. I don't know how to do this. I'm just a poor boy. Mm. I don't know how that all works. Yeah, no, you can never, you never get used to it. <laughs> can I never do? You it. said naughty teenager a couple of times. Can mm. you just give me a couple of examples of? Uh, Sylvia is a naughty teenager. Um, well, do I, do I, I've got kids. I can't tell everything. There must be something. No, I can't. There's tell. silence, Dave. <laughs> she doesn't want to tell us the truth. No. She's got this opportunity I've to got, bear no, her soul. No, because I've got a teenage son. God forbid. <laughs> yeah, but they need to know, don't they? Need well, to he know. Got, he knows some things because they need no, to know but your look, experiences. I was, um, you know, I was. Um, Let's just put, uh, and it was it was the nineties, and I was really liberated, I suppose. And so people were talking, and uh, um, and these days, I pro- it probably wouldn't make the the news in the local gazette. But um, you know, at the time, and I think it was because I was such a good little girl that then the transition into like, whoa what is she on and why is she doing this and skipping school and getting you know mixing up with the wrong crowds and all that jazz was um, quite full on. It didn't go on for too long. Luckily, I I had my drama um, that I, I would attend most days and that kept, kept me focused. And then, you know, I'd rehearse uh, shows and stuff and that was some sort of discipline. And it was also what um, made me get away with, um, you know, some less brilliant stuff at school because some teachers that um, were very open-minded, they could see that I had other things that, you know, were important and maybe, you know, my, my grades in maths or physics were not wonderful, but I had this artistic and um, I, I was quite good at all sort of literature and, and, um, and, and Italian and English and, and all those subjects that um, required, um, I suppose, a bit of more of an artistic flair yeah. and um, humanistic Some creativity. Uh, brain. I think you tend to, as a student, fall into the Humanitarian, yeah. humanitarian type uh, yeah, studies, or you become more of a I'm a physics and a math. That's right. A, that's how it works. And so you were lucky to have those teachers. Yeah, not all of them, but in fact, there was the philosophy. I, I used to love philosophy, but the philosophy teacher didn't, didn't love me. Let's put it that way. Mm. And he just uh, every, it was it was never good enough. Whatever I I said and did or presented to the point that I asked my dad to go and talk to him. Because uh, I was at that point where it's like he it just he has this idea of me that uh, is just never going to change, and so my dad went with all the good intention, with his you know beautiful black beard and green eyes and shiny black hair, and then he came back home and he said, "Oh, babe, you're on your own." <laughs> he said, "You're a, this is what he said, you're a hen that does not hatch." Oh, how horrible is that? Yeah. But have you been to a parent teachers where you get straight away why your kids are doing well in one class and not another? I as, have. as a parent. Yeah. And you go, now I know why you don't like yeah. chemistry. It's just, and it's a bit like, you know, what you do now. If you're passionate and you yeah. love it and people um, are drawn to that because mm. that's what you love. And I look back at my teachers. I loved English. I loved reading. And I remember my English teacher and damn sure it was him that, yeah, you know, fed, fueled, charismatic. fueled that passion and made me think it was kind of cool and interesting and I read everything he gave me. Yeah, yeah. And my li- literature um, teacher, he, look, he, he was not really straightforward in terms of being a good man or a good teacher, but he was very charismatic. And so that was enough for me to be intrigued 
Um, and so when I actually, I studied uni, I wanted, I, I studied a teaching degree and then I went to, and then I did my music degree instead. Yeah. So was Van Helsing pivotal in your career? Uh, it, it was in the sense that um, it sort of uh, took me away from music for quite a while because then, uh, you know, I, I, I got the opportunity to to be in, in that film and there were other films after that and sort of uh, try that um, crazy, like strange Hollywood game. and um, Explain that. Why is it strange Hollywood game? I think because everybody's so nice. It's very seductive. And I come from a culture where when you're an artist or a performer and you present yourself as someone who wants a gig, uh, the powers that be, they just treat you like trash. You're the very last uh, person to be valued or to be deemed important in the process. And it's a, it's a very old-fashioned culture where casting directors treat actors quite poorly and directors yell at them. And all of a sudden, everybody was so incredibly nice. Agents were so lovely and full of praise. And I'm like, everybody loves me. And they're like, no, everybody's bullshitting you. That's what it is. Yeah. So you have to be really sure of what you can do, what you can give and who you are, because no one is going to tell you whether you're good or bad. They're just going to tell you you're amazing. And if you believe that you're in big trouble, so, big, big trouble. so very seductive. Very the seductive. Whole it's very up. it's very easy to 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 fall that, into that did trap. Did that strike you at the time, or is that something that you look back? No, no, it did on? because it was so different from my experience of working, you know, professionally in in Rome, where you know we we're just used to being treated so badly, and it's like all of a sudden you walk into a casting room and people are shaking your hand and asking you how your day is, and I'm like, oh, what? what? Wow, they really like. Or you know, you do your audition and said. Oh, that was so lovely of you. Thank you for your energy. And it's like, it's all bullshit. Yeah. You know, but you go out of there think, thinking, I've nailed this. <laughs> I so got this role. And like, no, you so not. Um, and, and look, it's nice that they make you feel good, but it's also not nice that they lead you on as well. So it's you not, have to be strong. And it's not glamorous doing it. There's something, they must explain the difference between, say, live musical theatre and... Mm you know, starring in a big blockbuster film? Because I don't think most people paid any attention. Um, oh, yeah, look, it, it, the, the, the dynamics are, are very different because when, you're, um, when I was doing musical theatre work, work in particular, we would be on tour for five, six months at a time, touring all over Italy, you know, performing in these old ancient theatres. Well, you know, you're in your 20s, you don't give a damn. It's, all, it's now that I think, oh, my God, yeah, I can do all these places, amazing places <laughs> in Italy. Why didn't I take pictures? <laughs> like, cause I was sleeping in hotel rooms all day and then rock up at the theatre at 6.30. Um, and the camaraderie that you build with your castmates is second to none, to the point that my friends from those days are the friends that I speak to every day still. Like we have um, show-dedicated group chats on WhatsApp and we... Um, you know, check in with each other every single day, which is sometimes a bit annoying because you wake up in the morning and there's like 125 messages from various um, groups. But it's a, it's a bond that it's just so intense in the good and in the bad in the sense that, you know, there's there's rivalries and, um, and, and pettiness. But then as the years go by, you just remember the bond and the love mm. and, uh, and the, the magic of, uh, you know, being allowed to be so fabulous and creative and um, um, and together. You it must know. be instantly gratifying as well. It's kind of like cooking. You cook a dish, you feed people, and people go, yeah, you know. That's right. It's true. It's true. Whereas where... when you make a movie, the op you must be, you know, in a day, how often, how long is that day compared to what ends up on Exactly. Film? And also it's hours, very disjointed, you know. You know, you shoot, you'd ne you never shoot um, sequence by sequence, like chronologically. And sometimes you shoot part of a scene one day and then three weeks later you shoot like the external part of that scene or, or the, um, you know, whatever um, other setup for that, that scene is. Or sometimes, you you know, you, you're shooting your own close-ups, but the actor that is giving you the lines is not there. So someone else is giving you the lines, which I was like blown away by someone like Hugh Jackman who would turn up at six in the morning on set 
for your close-ups so that he could give you the line. He is a bit of a, that's why he's the nicest man on earth, I guess. That's wonderful. Yeah, you know, but he is. That's dedicated. Yeah, no, he's just beautiful man. But a lot of the times it's like the first AD who will do that and you kind of like go, okay, I'm not vibing with you, but that's okay. (laughs) So is it something that you love? It is, it is. I still love it. I still love it. I I don't do it as much. Um, Sometimes I miss it. But look, I try to grab opportunities when I can, when it's, when it's um, suitable with everything else that I do, that it's, um, you know, that, you know, we know what that's like. It's, uh, it's, it's very time consuming and all consuming as well, because I find that it comes from the same creative spark, but with the food writing and the cooking and the TV, even the TV hosting and producing the shows, you're in control. You have that creative control where when you're a performer, you, you know, you lend your craft, your skill to someone else and someone else's vision and you do that. So you're in like almost like an ingredient, I suppose, that gets um, put into a plate, which is fine. I love doing that. But um, the, the, the buzz that you get from, you know, creating your own content um, is, um, is, is, is a bit different. Um, but I do, and I, st- I still um, do s- singing as well. Um, I try to at least, you know, have one or two engagements every year so that I know that I have to keep my voice in a good, good shape because you can't just not do it for six months and then the next day have a, do a concert because you're just going to fatigue yourself. And it's very, it's very athletic what happens in the larynx and all those bits and pieces that you don't see but the, they function like a proper instrument. And so you have to keep all those muscles really active all the time. So for me to have, knowing that there's a few gigs here and there th- throughout the year gives me that discipline to um, yeah. practice all the time. Um, and it's also endorphin releasing. It's very good. In fact, okay, full disclosure, I always get a bit nervous before these things. Like what, like the, yeah, what we're doing now? Yeah, I do, okay. I do. Uh, it's and so I was in. I was a bit early, and I was in the car park, and I started singing some opera in oh, the car. You could have done that here. I, I could was... have done that here. However, it's really nice in the car because it's like being underwater. No one can hear you. Ah. Yeah, but no can one can be... hear us in here. Either, That's true. But great. you can. You can give us a scale, <laughs> or you can give us just wrap out one. Because then it puts. Because you know, the funny thing is that I think a lot of people listening don't aren't connecting what you do now and what they see you do now. Yeah, it's, it's a funny and what thing. you did. And I watched a few YouTube uh-huh. clips of you a little way back. Belting. Belting out some, stuff. Um, some notes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because... Are you going to uh, give us a little something? Oh, God. <laughs> see what happens. And then there, at least there was a reason to be nervous. So when you get home, you go, you don't oh, believe. Oh, what can I give you? What do I do? Mm. Three seconds, five seconds. And give you. Stay tuned, everyone. Let's see if you recognize this little one that I prepared earlier. (laughs) L'amour, 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 l'amour. From Carmen. L'amour est enfant de bohème. Il n'a jamais, jamais connu the law. Okay, that's enough. That's beautiful. I, and there's a, I've Dave's going to put in a coach. round of applause. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> but I'm sure there are people listening going, I didn't know that. Now they're looking no, on YouTube, I know, right? No, I know. And sometimes I've, uh, I've, I've, I've been uh, performing gigs and then at the end someone's waiting to, you know, talk to me or take a photo and they go like, cooking lady. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So you met Richard Roxburgh on set at... Van Helsing. Van Helsing. Yes. When was that? 
That was, I know where 2003 it was. in Prague. Oh, I had 2004. There you go. Well, You're, it came out wrong. in 2004. Oh, so we shot. So we met, shot and I read before. a funny story. You said a funny thing to him. I, it's all true. Like, honestly, this is verbatim the dialogue that we had. Uh, because the, there were, um, a Dra- he played Dracula and I played his first bride. There were two other brides, okay? A Spanish actress called Elena Naya and Josie Moran, who played his um, other beautiful blonde, blonde bride. <laughs> he had a blonde, redhead, and the brunette. So I go up to him, and first thing I ever said to him was, Hi, I'm Sylvia. I'm your Italian wife. Like, and his response? His response was so mortifying. He said, Oh, I can, <laughs> I can speak some Italian. And he said, Devo pisciare, which means I have to piss. I'm like, Oh. Thank you. What? <laughs> well, I thought that we had some work to do there. <laughs> and so his skills are improved now. Well, I also read somewhere that, um, what was it? That his breakfast Italian is very good because is it your reluctance to because speak I Italian don't spe- because first I don't, thing I don't, in the morning? I don't speak English in the morning. That's so he true. can ask for a coffee and toast and... Yeah, yeah, no, but I have to say now because my dad it doesn't speak English and so he basically had to learn to speak Italian and so he... I taught him, and he was very good at learning, to be honest. Um, and so he can have lengthy conversation with. And look, my dad's even in Italian. His really his thoughts are really convoluted, and and so it's very hard to keep up. But if you can if you can speak Italian to my dad, it means that you're really pretty fluent. That you've come some way yeah, yeah. from needing to go to the bathroom. Yeah, that's right. That's that's not bad. Well done, Richard. <laughs> Isn't that yes. good? So what was it, when was the decision, obviously you fell in love, there was a decision to move to Australia? Yeah, well, no, initially we moved to London, Okay. Um, which is very convenient for me because I was so close yep. to Milan and it was really good work-wise as well. And until GFC, I think it was about 2008 or 2009 that we thought, okay, that's just not, we can't stay here. Which was really hard for me, um, I'll be honest, because um, I was, um, it was a good moment career-wise and the thought of leaving Europe was, I've, I mean, I've been to Australia with him to hang out with his family and we'd stayed like for maybe three, four months at a time and he directed a movie in Australia. We were here for maybe six months. I had my first boy. Um, he was born here and then we moved to London and... Um, but moving permanently felt really uh, huge. And then I had, you know, I had another baby at the time. I, I felt for, for, a, for a few years, I felt really quite lonely. And I missed everything about being in Europe and in London. And, and you know, somehow everything that I was doing over there and achieving over there didn't quite translate here. And, you know, I had to start from zero for, for everything, friendships, uh, connections, family, and work. And so I had to knock at agent's door and say, will you represent me? And this is what I can do. And did a lot of, um, you know, co-op and paid work just to build the connections and just um, get everything going. And, um, and you know, and then slowly, and I, I used to send like, I, if, I, if I read that um, there was a play being um, uh, put on by a theatre company, I'd just inquire whether or not it was already cast and then I'd send a tape of me reading from the play. And that actually got me to um, jobs, which um, if I think about it in hindsight, I was really determined I was going to have a red hot go at this. And then my mom one day just said to me, yeah, this was probably 2010 or 11, Hi, I know everybody's got a food blog. Why don't you start a food blog? And we put all the family recipes in there because otherwise we're going to lose them. And I thought, oh, oh, why not? I mean, and literally I just went on uh, WordPress and started this blog, which was really bad to begin with. I had, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know that I could write, to be honest, and that was full of spelling mistakes and typos and hadn't heard of spell check, let's put it that way. And um, Spell check's not brilliant with food, though. It's true. That's probably also (laughs) what was that. But somehow... With uh, I don't really know exactly how that happened, but I, I, the algorithm made made it quite visible in the search buttons, and so people were engaging, and that got the attention of um publishers, and so I got um I got offers for a book from four publishing companies at some point, and I remember googling 
literary agent Sydney because I thought, what am I going to do here? And I clicked on Curtis Brown, send an email and said, help, I've got book offers, I don't know what to do. They got back straight away and said, oh, let me sort this out for you. And so that's literally how it started. And, um, and so I put my, my, my first cookbook together, Sylvia's Cucina. And, uh, and I'll be honest, I thought that it was going to be a one-off, a beautiful thing. I put my favorite family recipes in it and lots of stories and personal anecdotes. And, um, and then that landed on someone's desk at Fremantle Media. And they thought, oh, maybe we could develop a show with this person. And, and, then, and then I got a second book deal. And so it very quickly uh, became clear that I was being offered a career. And I just grabbed it because it was so beautiful, such a beautiful opportunity. And and at the beginning, I was um, there was a, there was a part of me that was reluctant because I wasn't a writer and I wasn't a chef. And when you're writing about food, these are two requirements. I mean, either one or the mm. other. Um, and You've so you've also I, got the responsibility of a whole nation being Italy, uh, reproducing right. those recipes, exactly. Right? Oh, oh, and mainly my nonnas. <laughs> And so, and, and because, uh, for example, my brother is a chef and so I, I've got such respect for what that job entails and it's a job that I've never done. I've never worked those hours in that heat and, and put myself through that. I had to make sure that it was very clear that I wasn't trying to portray myself as either a writer or a chef, that this is the voice of a home cook that tells stories about her culture that happened to be connected to food yeah and um and um yeah and so that's how sort of it um what was the journey like writing that book was it emotional was it it was because the first one in particular i had to really collect uh, um so many more recipes than i thought were needed for a book i had no idea and it was the minimum of 80 recipes and i'm like oh do we have this many and yeah we do actually because then there were subsequent books that um, and so it, I had to get in touch with, you know, long lost family members and, and get all the recipes. And, and, uh, the great thing that happened when all these recipes were sent to me, were that there was, there were no ingredient list as such, no measurements, no method. It was like bit of this, bit of that and cook it until it's done. And I was like, hmm, how do I translate this into cooking language? Because <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I can put this in a book. And I presume many of those dishes you hadn't cooked yourself either. I mean, it'd be something uh, you may have eaten. Some but... of them I hadn't. Some of them I had, though, because I, I was always really interested in cooking. So I probably should have prefaced by saying that I always cooked. And when um, my grandma, my mum's mum, she was about to die and we knew she was dying, she just... Um, gave me a three-day masterclass and she taught me all the recipes that she knew. She didn't have a huge repertoire, but her recipes, her food was just spectacular. And so we, had, we locked ourselves in a kitchen in Milan and we did this three days and we tackled all the favorites. And, and so it, it was good because it wasn't a bit of this and a bit of that because I could see what that meant. And so I wrote it down and I mean, and I, I, at the time I thought I'm spending time with my nonna who's about to die, but what was happening there, she was passing on this yeah. culinary dowry that it's now become such a huge part of what I love to do. Um, and I, I'm sad that I didn't have that opportunity with my other nonna because she died when I was, um, when I was an idiotic teenager who was not interested in getting a gnocchi masterclass. Ugh. So that was always part of me. And so when I, when I moved to Australia, there was this recurring chorus of people saying, oh my gosh, this is so yummy. You should write a book. And I was thinking, it's not really that special. That's what everybody cooks in Italy. And so even when I got my first book deal, my Italian friends were like, why? Why don't want you to write a book? Well, the, <laughs> what I, do you I, do that's so special? One of the special? questions I have in my mind is that I suppose being in Australia creates a unique opportunity mm. because what would the market be in Italy for a book exactly, that you'd write for Australians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 80 of my favourite Italian recipes are like, yeah, yeah whatever. whatever. Yeah, my nonna does it better. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's very true. And so I think um, what I got 
um, was became really connected was um, the immigrant story and the fact that you can be as far away from your homeland, but food takes you back. It's like a way to time travel and recreate the the comfort of those memories and and propagate them and and then having children as well um i quickly realized that it was really important that you know it wasn't just enough that they spoke italian they had to be italian as much as i want them to be australian obviously and they are they are it's, it's just really beautiful to see them embrace both cultures accordingly to you know when they when they go back to italy they switch back into yeah. Italian what, what do you miss mode. most? What do you miss? Because I presume you travel before the, mm, before the great, COVID, yeah. you know, the great COVID mm. scare. Um, what do you miss most about um, home? I just miss the sound of the language being spoken. You know, it's the first thing that hits me when I land at Malpensa is that everybody's speaking Italian. The announcements are in Italian, and you go like, ah. Oh. I don't have to engage, even if I am fluent in English, obviously, there's, I think even if I don't think about it, there is a level of engagement of my brain that is, is more intense than when I'm in Italy. It's, it's just an easier language for me. It's my first language. And so all of a sudden it's just a bit easier. And what do you love about here? Oh. Because <laughs> when, when I thought about it, I thought, you know, Milan is a, Beautiful city, obviously, mm. but then Sydney's a beautiful city. Oh, Sydney's a beautiful city, but it's not. But a, a very different culture, very different culture. I, I feel like I've, um, I've been allowed opportunities in Australia that I, I probably wouldn't have um, uh, had a, the chance to explore um, in Italy. It's, uh, it's a meritocracy here. And that's, you know, it saddens me about my, my country, but it's uh, really not the case over there. And it's heartbreaking. We're here, if you've got a good idea and you're prepared to work really hard for it, you get a go. And then it's up to you to, you know, make a go of it, but you, you get a fair go. You know, if, bringing up my children here, this thought gives me great comfort, you know, and I know that they can always go back to Italy. They've got that, but... This is a country that gives you that opportunity where you feel, you know, someone's got your back and you're not judged for wanting to do many things, you know. And I know um, at times I have found the frustration myself to have to explain that, yeah, you can be an actor or an opera singer and a TV co- and the, the, all these things can live together. I don't want to define myself, but I think it was it was never malicious when people would ask me, so what are you? I think it's just that we're so used to labeling things because then it's easier for other people to identify who you are. But in the last few years, a lot of labels of any sort have been stripped back and people don't care that much. Mm. You just do what you do and you try and be good and that's acceptable. Yeah. Mind you, in food for Australia, it's been a difficult period for a long time because what are we, you know? When if you're Italian, it's easy. So what kind of restaurant are you? You go, I'm Italian. And everybody goes, I get it. What kind of restaurant are you? We're Thai. But when you go Australian, everybody goes, well, what's that? Eclectic. So it's it's an interesting thing. Where's your favorite place to go to when you go to Italy? Do do you, as a family, obviously go back to see family? Yeah, yeah. Do you always base yourself there or do you get out of town? Um, Well, I I like to base myself there because I, I mean, my mom and dad still live in the apartment I grew up in. So for me, going back to that apartment is just like, I don't know, I allow myself to be a daughter and it's very comforting. And then I always return to the village in Abruzzo. Like that's a must. But then you're in Italy, you're going to have to, you know, travel a bit around. And um, But what's special about that village? What is The it? village is called Torricella and right. uh, it's... Um, it's a fairly small village. It's about, I think it's got about 2,000 people. A lot of them are relatives and... Um, it's uh, 900 meters above sea level, so it's, it's got its perfect temperate climate. And, and you know, it snows in winter. It's beautiful in summer. And because of the altitude, you see the Adriatic Sea from from where from the village, but you also have the Gran Sasso and the Maiella Mountain. It's quite magical, really. And um, um, I don't know what what what's about the village there. It's that when I go there, I find that I breathe differently, and I think 
my brother feels the same. Um, I think my sister as well, but I think it's mainly me and my brother that we really just almost like our facial features change. And I remember this used to happen to my grandpa, my nonno, who had to leave his village to move to Milan to offer his daughters better opportunities and was never happy in Milan. And so every year when he relocated to Torricella, within a week of being there, he had rosy cheeks and he had a smile on his face and, you know, his strut was completely different. His demeanor would, it, it, it's quite, um, it was quite a change. And I think my brother and I have, um, have inherited that um, um, sense of uh, transformation when we, when we go back to that place. Is it somewhere that you go on your own or, you know, a bit of, um, no, self-reflection. I, I, a bit of, I always try like to go. A, yeah. You know? <sighs> no, it's it's never, okay, going back to that village is never relaxing as such. I mean, right. it's relaxing to some extent because there's nothing much to do and there's no internet. and But there's always a lot of family, which is chaotic as you can expect it to be. Um, so I, I, I shot uh, one of my TV shows there for SBS, which was, so beautiful because we got all the villages involved as well and some family members and it was just so magical. Yeah, it was you know, it's a bit, I think it's a very rare thing for people to feel that way about a place. I'm always restless. Mm. You know, I moved here myself. I'm an immigrant, and but I always want to be somewhere else. Right, Even right. when I'm in Melbourne, I want to be in Sydney. When I'm yeah, in Sydney, yeah, yeah. I want to be in WA or I want to be in London. I'm just a restless soul. And I don't, as you were describing that, I was trying to think, do I have a place like that? I've probably got a few places that make me feel very emotional or different, yeah. but maybe not in the same way. That's very special. Do you think you'll end up living there again one day? No, not living, uh, but um, I just want to know that we can go back. That it's there. Yeah, that it's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the kids love it as well, which is so beautiful. Yeah, I bet they do. Yeah. Does Richard cook? Yeah, he cooks. Does he? He cooks, he cooks. And he's, he's really quite good. And I think, though, when you're married to someone who cooks professionally it becomes really hard because obviously because I do this more often I'm faster and quicker and it's not an event when I cook a family meal it's like I'm just cooking dinner where if he's on at the stove it's an event and there's a lot of people come from miles to see well yes (laughs) and then there's a lot of praise and then there's a lot so it's just it's just a bigger uh, exercise and I would love for him to just take it on board in a more relaxed way where it's like it's just dinner mm-hmm. and of course it's going to be delicious but don't overthink it and he's he's the kind of person that is you know he's having breakfast and he'll say what shall we have for dinner tonight because he needs you know to look forward to that thought when I'm like oh no I'll just think of something at five when I open the pantry because you know I'm Italian I open the pantry and there's 15 meals that I can cook because yeah. you know the thing I find about Italy, having you know, I haven't been huge amount of times, but I remember, I mean, probably about five or six times, and we spent a month in uh, Luca mm. in Tuscany, and it was just honestly like as a holiday, family holiday, that was one of the best holidays ever. Going to we the just, market, yeah, just you know, being a local, just relaxing into yeah. the whole thing, and I remember having this ridiculous dispute with a woman that was selling seps because she just misunderstood my crap Italian, and we she ended up. She ended up snatching them back off me. It was like you I don't didn't deserve, deserve them. <laughs> I will give them to someone that deserves them more than you. So, but it's but what I find, what I find it's so very cool. much a um, it has been very much a monoculture. So if you cook their food, they love it. If you cook something in an Australian sense where you change They'll a little bit, or you. they just mm. yep, we don't do it like this, and they argue endlessly about. The same thing themselves. Yeah, yeah. Should it have rosemary in, for example? Oh, exactly. And then you can talk about it for 30 minutes. Yes. But my suggestion is when you're talking to an Italian about things like bolognese, for example, don't ever mention that you flavor it with a bit of Vegemite. Ah, that's not good. That's just not going to fly. Yeah. And I know a lot of people do it. And I understand why they do it. I understand. But no. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. But it is a monoculture. They love their own food. They're very proud of it. And things like curries. I mean, you don't go, you know, and find great Vietnamese, great South Indian food, great, no. which is something that something in Australia. Something I really love about Australia. That's, is that, that's what you the, get. That variety. Okay, yeah. so what's next? Like I said, we're right at the beginning. Reading your resume, I'm like, wow. 
opera singer, an actress, uh, foodie. Restless. Any of these things really define me in a way because I can move in and out of them and just be that one thing for however long I need to be. I think I just want to be a good person. And, and you know, not a good girl, like a flawed person that tries to do better next time, I suppose. You know, room for error, room for improvement. Could try harder, and she does. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do try. B, B, yeah. B plus. Is that what you get for that I one? I guess so, yeah. I like that. And in the near future, what, what's going to be when we get back to a kind of new normal, what's the year going to look or next year going to look like for um, for you and the family and I was, um, I was, I actually used my COVID lockdown time quite, quite well because I was writing a new book. So that will come out and, um, um, and that's been a really good, um, project to have on my mind. And there was a lot of good food in the house with all that recipe testing that goes with when you're writing a book with a hundred recipes, um, filming requirements, permitting and, you know, what that's going to look like. Hopefully we get to shoot another season of Cook Like an Italian in the next few months. Um, yeah, that would be, that'd be really nice. And so. travel. Oh, that holy grail. Uh, Is it going to happen? As soon as I'm allowed, I'll be back uh, to mum and dad, mm. really. Yeah, I just want to spend time with them. Yeah, time in Italy, time yeah. in Australia. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank I really you. appreciate it. And the fact that you belted oh. out, you belted out a little... Uh, Carmen. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming in. You can't talk about Italian food without thinking about pizza. But there's pizza and there's brilliant pizza. And making good pizza at home can be a little troublesome. But here are my tips and tricks for great pizza at home. Number one, you need a great flour. It needs to be a high-protein flour. It means if you read the packet, it should say minimum 14% protein or buy a Tipo double zero flour, an Italian flour that's got little pictures of focaccia and pizza on the front. That's a good That's a good start. Simply put 500 grams of flour in a bowl, 10 grams of salt, and dilute only one to two grams of dried yeast in 325 mils of water. And that's tepid water. Now just gradually add the water, mix it together, bring it to a dough, knead it really well for about four to five minutes until it becomes soft and pliable and smooth. Roll it into a ball and then leave it covered in a warm place for a couple of hours. And when I say warm, this is all about temperature. Sounds strange, but you can actually put a thermometer into the dough. It should be about 20 to 26 degrees, and that's like optimum proving temperature. After that two hours, put it into a container, seal the container, pop it in the fridge, and now we're waiting, and we're waiting for 24 hours, and this is absolutely crucial because this is where all of that lovely gluten is developing and doing its job. So when you cook the pizza, it'll be bubbly, stretchy, and tasty. Trust me, this works. There's more to it, but if you can get that dough right, you're halfway there. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.